Happy New Year, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Starting a new year, I'm sure many of you are here because you've made a resolution to meditate more often. <laughs> so far, so good. This is a good moment to talk about time because we ended a year and we've started a new year, a new beginning. We actually, you know, this New Year's is, is a time when we honor the fact that the earth has gone all the way around the sun. Where did it get us? <laughs> right back where we started. And I think, you know, this orbiting thing is kind of making us dizzy. Maybe that's the problem. But tonight I would like to do some time traveling with you, uh, not only through cosmology, but also, also through history and biology and geology. I want to go into the past, and, and then uh, at the end I will offer you my shocking predictions for the year 2012. <laughs> uh, time travel is not just, uh, it's not just fun, but it uh, gives us a real perspective on our lives to see ourselves in the span of history or the span of the story of evolution and uh, certainly in, in the cosmic picture. Uh, and it teaches us about a Nietzsche, about the impermanence of civilizations, of species, of planets. It teaches, uh, teaches us about Dukkha, the pains of, of, of in, incarnation, and it teaches us about anatta, no self. It's interesting that neuroscientists have uh, come to realize that we are almost always time traveling. The default position of the brain is to travel and project ourselves into the future or back into the past. And even when we're going back into the past, it's in order to go over what we've already done so we don't make the same mistakes again. It's really a, a kind of survival technique that if you don't have a specific task at hand, if you're just sitting and trying to meditate, <laughs> in other words, the brain is traveling to the future, to the past. You may have noticed this. It's an interesting uh, condition that we carry with us. Um, anyway, in our time travel, let's start here and now, New Year's 2012. So that's if, of course, if you follow the Christian calendar. Some of us, you know, are Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims. I don't think we should all have to follow that calendar. There should be a separation of church and date. <laughs> I mean, the Jews are in the year 5772. We were here first. 
and we're now having another decade of the 70s. Maybe we should go out in the desert, find a burning bush, and smoke it. <laughs> but uh, these calendars, you know, the, this demarcation of, of New Year uh, is arbitrary, and uh, calendar's just a way of marking time off. Why don't we bring everybody together under one calendar and start counting from the beginning of our species? That would make this about the year 200,000 or so. It would be a little hard to write on your checks, but it would give us more of a sense of where we're coming from, how long it's been, this experiment so far. Of course, if we're all part of this universe, then uh, the year is 13.7 billion ABB. After the Big Bang, yes. <laughs> but, you know, the Hindus and the Buddhists, uh, uh, a lot of the, the Asian wisdom traditions, believe that there are this universe after universe after universe. Multiple universes. The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. He said, mm, oh yes, but bang, bang, bang. <laughs> Many bangs, many universes. And the Hindus say their creator deity Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a universe is destroyed every time he opens his eyes again, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself, it actually works. <laughs> I think, you know, because they have universe after universe, they, they, they don't know what, what time it is at all. And so that's why they invented the here and now. You know, it's just it's simple. It's just here. And um, so where are we now? We, we are in, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, we are in, according to the geologists, some leading geologists, we are in a new geological epoch named the, whole, uh, the Anthropocene. We had been in the Holocene, but now they're saying that the impact of humans is so great on this planet that there is a whole new geological epoch going on, and we are leaving a layer of <laughs> schmutz behind that, <laughs> that will be visible to our to the geologists of, of the future. It's, uh, the, there's some, uh, some geologists believe that the, it really started with the Industrial Revolution, about 1800, when we began to exert a huge impact on the planet by our carbon uh, footprint, by our altering the carbon content of the atmosphere. And we are the only species to have defined a geological period by our activity. Something usually performed by major glaciation, mass extinction, and the colossal impact of objects from outer space. We have had the equivalent impact on our planet. Let me read you this. 
time travelers. The earth, all parts of the earth are trampled, full of commerce, fields drive back the forests, even rocks are cultivated, swamps are drained. Today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere are residences, peoples, governments, life. And this above all proves humans' drastic growth. We so clog the universe it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them. And nature begins to fail us. That was written by the Roman, Emperor, Roman uh, historian Terulian in 150 A.D. Let's go back into the past, not, maybe not so far back as the Roman Empire, but to get some perspective on who we are now, we just need to go back about a hundred years. Really a very, very short time in any kind of sense of biology or uh, the lapse of time in, in, in the history of our species. Less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies, 1 to 200 billion of them, <coughs> containing, and this is a rough estimate, 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. No, we can't, you can't get your mind really around that. But our sense of how big it is has increased beyond our ability to comprehend it, let alone count it, count the number of uh, suns. The idea that we've gone from one, galax uh, one galaxy known of one galaxy to 100 to 200 billion and, of course, you've probably been reading about the Kepler Space Telescope recently that is finding thousands of planets. And just, they're just looking at one little piece of the sky and finding thousands of planets that could support life. Planets in the so-called Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. You know, they're <laughs> orbiting their sun. I'm, I'm very excited about this. I, I think it would be really great for all of us if we do find evidence of other life in the universe. would take the pressure off, you know? It, we wouldn't have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos, you know? It's not just about us. So we made some mistakes. You know, there's other beings out there Maybe they have their own Buddhas. Maybe they're beings of light. Mm. Maybe they'll get in touch with us sometime. They'll probably say, please keep the noise down. <laughs> but it is a whole new world we live in from a hundred years ago. Henry Ford built the first car in 1893. Now there are something like 800 million, a billion cars. I think people 
in the future, be, they're going to look back and they say, going to say they were nuts. They all had to have their own little box of steel and plastic to, so they could go anywhere they wanted, whenever they wanted, and they used up everything and made a big mess. And they're going to just... Uh, anyway, yeah. Well, first car, 1893. The Wright brothers made their first flight in 1903. First transmission of human speech via radio waves was in 1900. 1900, Max Planck first formulated the quantum theory, led to the creation of the atom bomb and a complete transformation of our understanding of, of physics, of reality. 1900, Freud published the interpretation of dreams. Started the beginning of showing us that we're not fully in charge of this organism we inhabit. Um, in 1900, only one and a half billion people lived on the earth. I think a lot of our confusion is because of these enormous changes that have happened uh, to our species and our planet in the last hundred years. hundred years ago, no cars, no airplanes, no radio, no television, no computers, no painkillers, <laughs> no antibiotics, no birth control, no Velcro, no Ziploc bags. hundred years ago, nobody believed in rock and roll. Somebody even then, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> People knew who their gods were. They did rituals and prayers and the, that were around for centuries and centuries. Just a hundred years ago or so, most of our ancestors were close to peasantry. Um, I know mine were, my great, great, grandparents. Most of our ancestors not very long ago. And now most of us are called on to absorb many volumes of information in a lifetime and operate fairly complicated machinery. It's a whole new world out there. So, you know, if you can't walk and chew gum and do your do your email at the same time, don't blame yourself, you know, you're just, <laughs> I think, you know, the texting thing, we're finally realizing what the opposable thumb was for, you know. <laughs> and in the last 200 years, we've nearly doubled the average human life. So now you get twice as long to be yourself. There's a, it's really interesting to, to note also that the concept of self has really changed over time. Self has its own history. And we are living in a time of extreme individualism. It didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The, 
the tight shoes of self weren't always this tight. Um, if you had come up to a desert nomad, or even today, or a serf in Europe a few hundred years ago, and said, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. You do what your parents did. You inherit uh, you know, a, a job, a, a little plot of land. You, you know, your marriages are arranged. You know, it, it's, it was very quick life. And uh, it was very prescribed. It didn't feel necessarily like this. Rollo May, the great psychologist, said, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. There has been some uh, studies of early Greek literature that indicate that the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. Uh, we would now, of course, consider that schizophrenic. Of course, we believe that all the voices in our heads are ours, <laughs> which is its own form of delusion. <laughs> We've lost in our time what anthropologists used to call a participation mystique, a sense of being part of much larger groups, a tribe, nature, the cosmos. Now we're in this society where you're, you're told you're, you're on your own. You make it on your own. You're, you, know, you carry the whole burden of, of your life. Uh, it's all up to you. Your decisions are yours. Your destiny is in your hands. Nobody says God willing even anymore, you know? Inshallah. It's a crazy, it's a crazy belief understanding. But what are we going to do? You know, it's it it's it's so culturally uh, a part of who we are. And part of coming to meditation is is to begin to investigate ourselves and find that actually. Our individual human life is first and foremost life. We begin to identify, the shift, shift our identi identity away from the psychological drama of I, me, which is all, our, all very personal, and begin to identify more and more as a living being, as a human, uh, really bringing the story down from the up here in the head and down into the body. Actually, we're working down the chakras, contrary to what you may have been told in spiritual life. We're learning what we have in common, not what separates us. So, time traveling, let's time travel back into biological history. I've been working on a, a piece for the next Inquiring Mind, reflecting on the scientific story of evolution. And when we re reflect on it, we, what is revealed is a lineage of bodhisattvas stretching back millions of years 
through epochs of geological time, we owe our existence to the struggles and sacrifices of uncountable numbers of organisms. Creatures who had to shapeshift to the ever-changing demands of natural forces, beings who suffered horribly through changing atmospheres, ice ages, comets crashing to the earth, continents colliding, volcanoes erupting, floods and bacterial plagues. It is the determination to live on the part of all those beings that, uh, that has brought us to this moment of semi-awakened consciousness. So uh, then I'm writing a tribute to a couple of these beings who we might pay tribute to and include in our lineage of uh, Ancestors of Awakening is the title of the piece. Um, there are many, but I think uh, most important that we start with at the very beginning and pay tribute to Luca. Luca is the name the scientists have given to the first being. Luca stands for the last universal common ancestor. So we go back three and a half billion years. The story is magical and inspiring. Just imagine the stormy beginnings on this fiery ball of cooling magma out on the roiling, broiling seas when a precision bolt of supercharged lightning, random or, uh, or intelligently designed, your choice, hits a fecund blob of chemical scum and shazam! Those in energized elements turn into Luca, a tiny but determined little membrane-enclosed child of the mud. Suddenly, some of the substance of Earth acquires a strange new condition, life. One biologist said, life is matter with needs. Anyway, so, I'm imagining that in the beginning, three and a half billion years ago, life was relatively good for Luca, just bobbing around on the ocean waves all day, not a care in the world. My theory is that Luca was as happy as any being could be at the time, partly because there were no other beings around for comparison, but she, I gave her a, a female uh, gender, but there was no gender. But she was happy because there were no other beings around to eat her as well. But Luca, over the, a few epochs, became lonely and had no one to share this kind of wonderful existence with. She kept saying, wow, look at that sunset, somebody. But <laughs> she was all alone. Finally, she came upon a solution, stretching the minuscule substance of her body to the breaking point and then pushing outward even harder from the spiraling DNA core of her being with a final spasm of energy. Luca split in two. The story of evolution had begun. And at last, Luca had someone to share the world with. And she started having twice as much fun, literally, what happened was that Luca had found someone to love, and the being she fell in love with was actually a part of herself. Luca fell in love with Luca. Now, there are those who might consider this a case of narcissism. But there is a profound spiritual message in this story telling us to consider all other living beings as part of ourselves, which is the truth of the matter. 
we have good reason to love all beings as ourselves. So there's Luca. And then uh, another species and being that I pay tribute to is the frog. The earliest, earliest frog-like beings evolved about 400 million years ago when the pectoral and pelvic fins of certain fish developed joints, turning the fins into a primitive form of legs, which were then used to crawl up on this newly emergent land. You know, there were no legs. Life had no legs for over a billion and a half years because there was no land. There was no need for legs. I mean, the whole thing, the whole structure has been carved out of, over the over the millennia, carved by natural forces out of the life force itself. We are, it's like nature is the artist and we are the arts. We are the works of art. Anyway, so the, they got these primitive form of legs. Just imagine the heroic efforts of those beings with their awkward little fin feet, the webbing between the digits still in place, sliding off the hard, sometimes still burning rocks over and over again as the ocean sucked them back to where the predators swam. And if they could manage to hold on to the land, they had to frantically gulp the air due to the fact that their breathing apparatus was still designed to take most of its oxygen from the, from the seas. And to make matters worse, the air was so much less buoyant than the water that those early landwalkers could barely move themselves around through the heavier pull of gravity. Is it any wonder that some of the more intelligent land mammals moved back to the oceans? <laughs> but these were the little beings that uh, determined to survive were part of our lineage of life on this planet. We're part of this family, you know. And the reason I pick out the frogs partly to pay tribute to are not only because they made that heroic effort from the seas to the land, but also because they are dying. And uh, they're about to make biological history by becoming victims of the Earth's largest mass extinction since the disappearance of the dinosaurs. An amphibian apocalypse Many biologists believe we are now facing the extinction of this entire class of animals. There are several good but selfish reasons why humans should try to save the frogs. Consider that if the frogs disappear, we will likely have plagues of mosquitoes and flies. And if the frogs disappear, then the snakes will start slithering into the suburbs to find food. Of course, the greatest tragedy for us is if the frogs disappear, we will no longer hear them singing in the evening twilights. But let's take a deep ecology point of view and arouse some concern for the frogs for their own sake. After all, the frogs lead important lives too. They have mothers and children. Remember the cute little tadpoles? And on the sentimental side, remember Froggy went a courtin'? How could we let them disappear? So many species belong in our circle of reverence. So we could go back and, you know, 
back and back. Those moments in history. When those early, what about when the early primates first came together and realized that two heads are better than one and those mirror neurons started to come alive and started blinking on and the first seeds of love began to grow. Or those early primates who first looked into a pool or a lake and saw their reflection and began to wonder about their existence. A long lineage, the past. We could go back five billion years when the solar system was just forming. Thich Nhat Hanh once said, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock. This is not poetry, this is science. The Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago, there was a Big Bang. 13.7 billion years ago, today. Why not? Happy birthday to you too. (laughs) This is an image I always love. A trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. Now that's the universe you get your mind around, you know? (laughs) And everything was in there. From that Big Bang, which was apparently a Big Bang of a dot, a point smaller than an atom, exploded. And out of that explosion came billions of galaxies, uh, the earth, all the mountains and the oceans and the forests and the people and the animals and the Zafus and everything you can know of and name all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot smaller than an atom. Now isn't that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? Which is more fantastic. Take your pick. (laughs) So we had a big bang. Look what happened. It's such a... The more, you know, the more the scientists find out, the more mysterious and wondrous it all becomes. I I am really... uh, My passion in the last number of years has been to try to find the spiritual messages in especially the story of evolution, the biological story. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's such a wondrous story. Life has gone from a single-celled being, Luca, to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you and me all working together in the same organism. I think the main message, spiritual message of, of the story of evolution is this. The main, one of the main ones. I, right up there, top two. You are not your fault.
You didn't choose this body. You didn't choose this brain. I mean, I hope you didn't choose this brain. And it's such a forgiving, the spiritual message is so forgiving because if, we, if you look at the story of evolution, you realize that us humans are, are a baby species. There were 100 million generations of dinosaurs and about 30, 40 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 20,000, 30,000 generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We obviously don't know quite know how to use them yet. They didn't come with a good instruction manual. We're learning. We're learning. That's why this is so exciting. I mean, we're not sitting here for ourselves. We are, of course. We're, you know, we want to relieve our suffering and train our minds. But we're doing this as a species. To understand that is very liberating. Because you realize, first of all, that what you inherited is not your fault and you don't have to go, oh, I can't be mindful every moment of the, my day. I must, there's something wrong with me. I'm an idiot. I'm not a good meditator. You're forgiven. It's, you're human. You're perfectly human. And uh, that, that also gives us hope. I mean, really, the, the experiment, this experiment that we're involved in here is uh, 2,000, 3,000 years old. That's nothing. That's the blink of a blink of an eye in biological time. We're just learning that we're really nuts and really out of control and that we can develop this quality of mindfulness and we can actually go in and we don't have to follow every thought or every impulse or every instinct that, you know, millions of years of instinctual embedding in, in our nervous system and brain. We can actually override some of that. We can become a whole new kind of animal. I hope you're not offended. <laughs> you know, you, you go to... <laughs> I know people are in denial. You go to a, a supermarket or a cafe and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right in. They just... <laughs> no animals here? I think we should be proud to be part of this great kingdom of beautifully arrayed creatures. Okay, so we're still time traveling. and We don't have too much time left. Um, So I'm going to offer you my shocking predictions. We're going into the future. If you're you're ready, strap, strap yourself in. Um, this happened, actually, this was a kind of spiritual breakthrough for me. Uh, I don't know exactly why it happened this way, but maybe it was because I'd been taking massive doses of this new herbal formula called chakra decongestant. <laughs> or maybe it's because the the battery in my meditation timer died and uh, the bell didn't go off, so I went into like three days of absorption, deep absorption. Anyway, I came out and my third eye was permanently open. It keeps me up at night. It's not that, it's not that much fun to have your third eye open. But it has allowed me to see into the future. 
So here is what I predict and what I see. Prediction number one. In the year 2012, the European Union will announce that it will solve the Eurozone debt crisis by selling Belgium. (laughs) The EU decided on the sale after turning down a similar proposal to sell timeshares of the Italian province of Tuscany. (laughs) Prediction number two. In the year 2012, the Occupy movement will decide to shut down business as usual in America by occupying all of the public restrooms. (laughs) At great personal sacrifice, occupiers will sit for weeks at a time in the toilets of business and government buildings, restaurants, and malls, making constant reference to the stink of capitalism. (laughs) All across the nation, the American people will be unable to relieve themselves as protesters put into place on every restroom door the sign, Occupied. (laughs) Don't know whether you could see it coming or not. (laughs) Prediction number three. Following on the Supreme Court decision that corporations are people too, the U.S. Senate will begin debating a bill called the Defense of Mergers Act. However, unlike the debate over the Defense of Marriage Act, Conservatives and liberals will switch sides, with conservatives arguing that this is America and a corporation person can merge with any other corporation person they choose. (laughs) Liberals will continue to exist that gays are people too. (laughs) Prediction number four. The Republican Party, after looking closely at its potential candidates, will decide not to nominate anyone for president next year. (laughs) <laughs> Remember, this is a nonpartisan meditation department. <laughs> Instead, citing their ideological determination to get rid of all government, the Republicans will begin to campaign for nobody for president, <laughs> reminding the American people once again that nobody is perfect. Nobody has all the answers. <laughs> Nobody's keeping score. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. <laughs> and of course, most importantly, nobody cares. <laughs> Prediction <number> five. <laughs> In an attempt to crack down on terrorism and general unruliness, in 2012, the Homeland Security Administration will declare that anyone who wears a hat without a brim will be considered a terrorist suspect. <laughs> the hats without brims include Arab kafias, Zapatista ski masks, Rastafarian skull caps, Jewish yarmulkes, and the berets of artists and intellectuals. The government says that people who do have brims on their hats, but wear those brims turned sideways or backward, are also suspect, but not in the same threat category as those who wear hats with no brims at all. (laughs) Prediction number six. There's only a few more left. In the year 2012, President Obama will announce that the United States is so deep in debt that in order to raise money, the nation will begin selling naming rights to anything anywhere within its borders, both natural and man-made. 
The corporations will immediately begin the bidding, leading to the creation of the Budweiser Mississippi, <laughs> the Walmart Grand Canyon, and in Yellowstone National Park, the Viagra Old Faithful Geyser. <laughs> the, <laughs> the announcement of the new names will be made from the Microsoft Windows White House. <laughs> Prediction number seven. In 20, no, no, we already did that. Okay, so prediction number eight. In the year 2012, several human clones will be created, but as the clones come to life, relatives will notice that they don't enjoy being around the person whose stem cells they were cloned from. It turns out that any new version of yourself would reject you. <laughs> In prediction number nine, in the year 2012, real estate agencies will begin buying and developing land around the Arctic and Antarctic regions of the Earth as temperatures make human settlements at the poles likely in the next few decades. Plans are already being drawn up for the Top of the World Motel 6 and the Sheraton Polar Palace where the hotel staff will all be dressed as penguins. <laughs> prediction number 10. As predicted, on December 21st, 2012, at 11.11 11 a.m., the 5,000-year-old Mayan long count calendar will come to an end and many had believed that so would the world. However, what I'm seeing is that nothing, absolutely nothing will happen after the calendar runs out. Everything will go on as usual and that the collective sigh of relief, of relief will be just a little louder than the collective sigh of disappointment. And finally, prediction number 13. I'm now seeing a fantastic phenomena, a great international movement ignited by the Arab Spring and Wall Street occupation, now growing bigger and stronger with progressive nation states and NGOs joining in and young people and aging boomers and former revolutionaries and the tired old labor movement and millions upon millions of people around the world who want to end the rule of the profiteers and oligarchs and who understand that we must stop all our petty tribal wars and change our horrible habits of consumption and come together as a species in peril. I'm seeing this great movement of people who realize that it's time to focus our collective energy on finding ways to clean up the oceans and control our populations and protect all species of life. But wait, this vision it's fading. My third eye seems to be closing. I can't see the outcome. I don't know what will happen. Could it be the future is still wide open? Perhaps it is still in our hands, waiting to be shaped by the passage of time and our good intentions. And uh, this is Scoop once again reminding you to question it. It's Scoop G. Question authority, question reality, and if you don't like the news, of course, go out and make some of your own. So let me just end with this little quote from D.H. Lawrence. We might have time for a couple questions. 
comments, additions, corrections. This is from D.H. Lawrence. Our task in the coming era is to relocate ourselves in the cosmos and renew our kinship with all of Earth life. It is time to join again in the dance drama of biological and cosmic evolution. In short, to regain some humility and find our life's meaning not in individual accomplishment, but in our shared existence. So, earthlings. I'm working on this show that I've been doing uh, under the title Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. By the way, there are DVDs and books and things available on my website, westnisker.com. But uh, I'm, I'm rewriting this show that will be at the freight probably in June, May or June of this year. It'll be called How to Be an Earthling as our primary identity. Any, uh, any, anything? I, a little bit, yeah, I, yeah, I was kind of, well, I was the only Jewish kid, you know, in my, in my, in this little town in Nebraska, I was raised the only Jewish kid, so the only option for me was to be funny, that was it, you know. <laughs> um, that's the only way that cheerleaders would, would look at me twice. Um, um, so far the year's been pretty good, yeah? We need rain. Well, it's been a delight to be with you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your attention. Be well. May our paths cross again sometime soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.